0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging TV. Hey,
1: Robert, how are you doing? Great. Glad to hear it. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, and I'm with Robert Cherry, who is a professor emeritus of economics from Brooklyn College, uh, City University of New York, and an old friend of mine who I've known for many years and has been a frequent guest in the past on the Glenn Show. Glenn Show is uh, sponsored by the Watson Institute for Public uh, International and Public Affairs at Brown. I'm a professor uh, in the institute as well as in the economics department, and I'm glad to be talking with uh, with uh, Robert. Uh, so, what's on your mind, Robert? Our fellow well, economist, did I say that this man uh, writes these most interesting articles about human resource economics and uh, has been doing it for a very long time? Uh, so, uh, what's on your What's on your mind these days? You live there in New York city, uh, an election is coming. We got lots of Well, to talk about,
0: One of my, you know, my day job is being an economist and dealing with issues of race, inequality, poverty. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm Jewish. No and kidding. I have a concern <laughs> about the Jewish experience. Uh, I actually write about that, uh, to a reasonable degree. Uh, but certainly I've written most recently a number of articles about the anti-Semitic spike in New York City. Tell
1: us about that. The anti-Semitic, you mean uh, attacks on individuals uh, on the streets of New York?
0: Yes. I mean, there's always been, if you look at hate statistics, hate crime statistics, you have uh, always a very large number of Anti-Semitic hate crimes. It, it dwarfs, uh, Muslim, anti-Muslim hate crimes, LBG, to hate crimes. Uh, and that's because there's a lot of vandalism of synagogues, you know, spray painting, swastikas, and the like. But what has been the uptick in New York City has been assaults. So that, uh, it went from 17 in 2018 to 34 in uh, 2019. That's not, you know, we're not talking about uh, massive. Repeat the numbers again. I'm sorry. From what to what? From 17 to 34 in New York City.
1: Okay. In a city of 8 million people. You got me wondering whether this is a real phenomenon.
0: Well, it is you know, there's two aspects to it. One is that it's only the Orthodox community. Uh, in other words, people who visibly demonstrate they're Jewish. Um, and secondly, there are countless uh, in- interactions that go on that aren't reported. You know, if somebody calls you, you're dirty, whatever, Sure, it like, People are running and calling up, so uh, it's what it is. And what drew it? I mean, it's it's a it's about as much as if we combine anti lbgqt and anti-Muslim crimes in New York City.
1: Really. Uh, There are only only, uh, a couple of dozen anti-gay and anti-Muslim. Well, I'm talking about assaults.
0: Don't forget, if we talk about all anti-Semitic crimes in New York City, the numbers go from 144 to 246.
1: Does being Jewish make a crime against you an anti-Semitic crime, or do you have some finer way of classifying these offenses?
0: Well, they're either, you know, they can include verbal which goes under the rubric of intimidation. Uh, it can be property. Now, it's only the Jewish anti-hate crimes that include property. I mean, it's not gay, lesbian. It isn't that their property is... Uh, so, so that's why Jewish crimes uh, appear to be much larger because you have this uh dimension. You also have uh robocalls to synagogues threatening okay. all kinds of things. Uh you know, so you have uh because of the property, you have uh, so for example, the A- Anti Defamation League uh found that flyers in public places and robocalls were 229 of the 249 incidents of uh, an- anti Semitism by right wing groups. Because that's what right wing groups do. They put up flyers, they make anti Semitic calls. And there have been, as in POTA in California, you know, they do engage in more violent activities. You know, so
1: anti uh, Semitism has a range. I, I yeah. want to, and and I, I don't. I, I hope I don't come off as seeming to deny the existence of anti-Semitism. That's not what I'm doing. But I was, I was very uh, struck by a piece I read a long time ago by Rogers Brubaker. He's a sociologist at UCLA about ethnic classification of violence. His specific concern was with respect to election violence in Kenya, where you have the two tribes, the uh, Kakuyu and the Luau, and they you know, and they break down by party, and then they, you know, and, and so there was violence. And he was saying, let's be careful because before we call it ethnic violence. He had a number of points. I mean, there, there were ethnic people, and there was violence. There was no dispute about that. But he wants to emphasize that the move to calling it ethnic violence is, a, is another, yet another move. And he also wants us to be aware of the fact that people have an interest, some parties, in manipulating public concern about ethnic violence by classifying events in ethnic terms, Uh, in order to further their own particular political agenda so that we, you know, the social reality and the reporting about the social reality don't have to be the same thing. Uh, Do you share, I mean, can you see what I'm concerned about? And can you assure me that we are not having a problem here of, um, look, somebody attacks somebody, the person attacked happens to be Jewish, the person who attacked them happens to be a poor resident of the community, And then, you know, words get exchanged and then the thing becomes ethnic. Do you see what I'm concerned about?
0: Yes, and that's exactly what the liberal thrust has been most recently. So, for example, uh, an important journalist in New York who's starting to get a national reach, uh, Lewis Errol, he wrote an article and he said, well, it's really people with mental disorders, if you look at the adults and a couple yeah. of the others, they're mental disorders, and if you look at the rest, it's mostly young people who are juvenile delinquents, so that the fact that they happen to be attacking Jews, not that it's incidental, but it's it's not the major thing, and therefore we should focus on mental health and dealing with juvenile delinquency rather than putting police in front of synagogues, etc. So that gets at a little bit of what you're saying. The second way in which this has been uh, shifted away from a focus on anti-Semitism has been to say that a certain amount of it is a reaction to gentrification. So that if you look in Jersey City, there was this invasion of Orthodox Jews into this black community. If you look at Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, it used to be 80% was African-American. It's now 50% where 25% are Haridi, Orthodox Jews.
1: Wait a minute. 25% of Bed-Stuy are Haridi? Yes, okay.
0: uh, another 20% are Latinos. So, okay. best- and, this,
1: and this has happened. I'm just curious, over what period of time did this happen? About
0: 20 years. I see. <laughs> now, I think the Orthodox moving in has been much more in the last decade. But uh, it, you know, so you have this layer that says, you know, there are structural issues here competition for housing and these orthodox move in and automatically the notion of gentrification is linked to displacement. And it's, you got a problem with that? I mean what's wrong with that? Sounds plausible. There's no evidence of it. That's what's wrong with it. Oh, I see. All of the evidence <laughs> <laughs> almost all of the evidence says that if you look at gentrifying black neighborhoods And you look at ungentrifying gentrifying Black neighborhoods, the rate at which Blacks move out is virtually the same. And the Blacks who move – now, what happens over time is that it isn't as if uh, that's the whole story because who moves in? So maybe Blacks don't move out at any accelerated pace, but the people who move in are not Black. So you get neighborhood transition because of the movement in. Uh, that's what happened with white neighborhoods turning to black neighborhoods. It wasn't in the first decade or so that somehow there was white flight. At some point, there might have been. But initially, it was simply whites move out, but it's blacks who are moving in. So that's what's going on. And the whole issue of the decline in black, black populations, whether it's in D.C. or in New York City, it's suburbanization. Yeah, that blacks are moving to suburbs, the and ones who can, and they're also moving to the south. So, yeah. so, Chicago
1: is losing population hand over fist. I understand, for example. Yeah, yeah, but 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 uh, Bob, I just want to ask you. Um, so an incumbent population in a neighborhood resents newcomers. Nothing new in that. The newcomers happen to be uh, Jewish. The incumbents happen to be black. I don't know if I want to call it black anti-Semitism
0: or not. I, I want more evidence. No, I understand. that. I'm agreeing with you. Oh, okay. That, well, but their resort to violence is not what they're doing when there are white gentrifiers moving in. Okay. I think... I. That's think important. That's important. There are certain stereotypes about the Haredi community, which are held by a lot of secular Jews, that, you know, that they uh, vote together, that they take advantage of of uh, social services, they're manipulating, you know, all the kind of stereotypes. Uh, And, you know, so the word invasion is used now. But I'm agreeing with you that anti-Semitism is not the only thing that's going on here. Okay. Uh, but, But the fact is that it, you know, it has created a serious problem in New York among the Orthodox community where, you know, they get shoved, wigs get pulled off and not all of those things are reported. Most of them aren't. And, you know, so it's, it's just an uncomfortable kind of situation. And when you have a couple of murders as in Jersey city, yeah. you know, knifing up in uh, Munsey, which is a suburb. Yeah. Uh, you know it is unsettling to say the least, sure. Uh, but as I said, almost all of the reaction has been, what else is going on besides anti-Semitism? Because among liberals, anti-Semitism is the right wing. It's the Trump people and so on. And so you know there's there's a very strong tendency to try to find other reasons. And after all, there is mental illness. There is, you know, just juveniles in neighborhoods. And, you know, if those neighborhoods happen to have Orthodox people in it, they will be, you know, there was about five or eight years ago, there was a situation where young Blacks would go out and punch people. I forget yeah. the was- But it was white. I mean, it wasn't Orthodox
1: Jews. It was, it was this just, was happening not just in New York City. It was happening in Philadelphia as well. I don't know, maybe other places as well. So, and the, the kids would organize these groups of uh, uh, kids to go to malls or go up to downtown streets by uh, social media, and then would would show up. I, there's a word for it. I don't remember what it was called, but um, you know.
0: Yeah. No. No. So. So again, you know, but but, but so my point
1: would be, yeah. if the people cheat by job with the low-income black housing project or whatever it is happen to be Haredi, they're going to be the victims. And if they are walking around in, quote-unquote, funny-looking coats with, quote-unquote, long uh, braids coming down and whatnot, they're they're going to be victimized by these kids if these kids are out creating mischief. It still doesn't by itself. I want to hear about the ideology of the kids. I want to hear about...
0: the look, you do have... ...where racism is is being preached. You see what I'm saying? Well, look, you do have the Black Israelite group yeah. For example, you do have the nation of Islam, okay? Hurricanes, uh, anti-Semitism. I've heard about it. No, no. So, so it isn't as if it isn't there, and there is this aspect of Jews brutalizing Palestinians. You know, they're not that these kids are part of the, you know, boycott divest uh, movement uh they're not activists in support of the Palestinians, but they it is it's not it wouldn't be surprising if a reasonable amount of that demonizing of Israeli Jews has filtered down and so that there is i'd want to see evidence of that. I could see
1: that the chattering classes amongst the African Americans, the journalists and the intellectuals might out of sympathy, sympathy with the Palestinians downplay anti-Semitic violence. I can see that. But a kid who can barely read with respect, I don't mean any disrespect. To oh, these you're kids, being you're very not.
0: stereotypic here. No, Mom, come on, we study <laughs> these things. We,
1: we, no, no, <laughs> we're no. talking about poor kids in, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, all right? How sophisticated are they about global affairs? With respect, I don't mean any disrespect, but I'm trying to stay in touch with reality such that they have an anti-Zionist Motivation to attacking
0: don't the guy? I I mean, I'm not saying that they have it in a sophisticated way. Okay. They have heard about Israelis brutalizing Palestinians. Okay, trickle down kind of thing. You know, it... They've heard about that. Uh, so yeah. I'm saying that, you know, there are and there's still the stereotype about the rich jews and and so on. So, I mean, I I, I don't want to overestimate it, but there is I think a uh, a certain insensitivity if not uh negative view of jews.
1: Let me ask you about whether in the context of these uh, assaults and attacks, the communities of uh, leaders among Jews and among the Heredia in particular, uh, on the one hand, and uh, in the black uh, churches and the civic leaders on the other, are in any kind of conversation about this uh, community, about transformation of, you know, uh, ethnic neighborhoods and about uh, how to get along.
0: Well, there certainly is. Uh, so there's a Jewish Community Relations Council, and their objective is to have relationships with other groups, and in particular, black Americans. Uh, because for historic reasons, it is very important in the organized Jewish community to have links, positive links to the black community. Uh, and what they have been trying to argue is that this gentrification issue has to be well thought out more. That what they've tried to argue is that it is also the Orthodox Jews who've been negatively impacted by gentrification. You know, so we're all in the same bag and we shouldn't be fighting each other. Now, that's just not true. That's not why the Orthodox Jewish community has moved into a number of other communities. It's population. They have growth, they got kids, and there are neighborhoods that do not have uh, high-rise housing. So if they're going to move, you know, if their kids are going to have places, if their community, they have to move. But but again, getting back, and to, they're moving
1: on mass. I gather that it's not just each individual household deciding they want to stay together, as it were, as a Is community. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. So and there's that's you know, what happened in Jersey that? City. That's happening in a number of communities elsewhere in Jersey, Lakewood, uh, which has been for a, a while a fairly Orthodox, they need more space, so they're moving into other communities, and other communities are worried because they come in, they'll vote as a block, they won't support public schools because their kids are in yeshivas, yada yada yada, as uh, Seinfeld would say.
1: I saw that piece in the New York Times not long ago on the op-ed page by uh, a leader of the Haredi community in New York, uh, complaining about the stereotypes. He was, he was saying, don't use the word ultra-orthodox when That's referring right. to these people. Why are you That's saying right. ultra? What's that about? And also about this idea that there was some kind of, you know, conspiracy. They were all a cliquish clan of people who were behind the scenes trying to manipulate and whatever. And I've seen enough movies in which that trope has appeared that <laughs> <laughs> I can understand why a kid off the off the block, a uh, black kid or a Hispanic kid might think that.
0: Now look for a. I, for a number of years, they there's a freshman reader at Brooklyn College. And it's it's become cop- t- captive of the social justice crowd. And so every year you have uh, some victimization narrative, Dominican, Puerto Rican. I want people to understand, this is a book
1: that every freshman coming into the college reads before they get on campus in the fall of their first year.
0: Right, and then, and the, then the first there's three discussion. weeks there's discussion and I for years have been trying to get adopted. There's this author, Chaim Potok who wrote a book, the chosen about the Haridi community in a very sympathetic, I don't know, sympathetic, but in a nuanced way. And I'm hopeful this year, it'll finally happen because of all of this uh, service that's happening in Brooklyn. So
1: now, I get the impression, just, Bob, um, that
0: you think liberals,
1: and that would include liberal Jews in New York City, are downplaying the uh, anti-Semitic dimension to this phenomenon and the racial dimension to this phenomenon. Is that correct?
0: Yes, and I think I, I think that it has to do with Israel in some ways because, you know, the black community doesn't have... A particular reason to have a strong commitment to Black Jewish relations, but the Jewish community does in an, as I mentioned before, it's just been a longstanding thing, but also the whole issue of Israel, where, you know, there is uh, in Sanders represents uh, a critical turning away from. Uh, broad support for Israel. So that just this Jewish community relations council, it, it supports every year taking black officials to Israel. They have, you know, 10 days of this or that. Uh, it's, uh, like a birthright for non-Jews, uh, uh, and Brooklyn College has that. It's a propagandistic boondoggle would be the other way of putting it. <laughs> well, whatever it is, Brooklyn College is bringing, uh, there's going to be four or five administrators, including in student, student affairs, are going to Israel in two weeks for, uh, you know, to give, to give a, a, a more sensitive, understanding I get the Israeli situation. That's a good thing, isn't it? I think it's a good thing, but, but Jewish leaders in New York, and I know some of them, you know, do they want to go out on a plank about black anti-Semitism in Brooklyn? Do they want to force an issue on that when they have much more at stake broadly in relationships, and specifically around this issue of Israel. So I can appreciate them trying to say, well, we're all being victimized by gentrification and uh, we should have some solidarity. And, you know, for me, it,
1: meaning that it's the upper income WASP who threaten to push us both aside. Is that, is that the translation? That's sort of, of
0: what they're implying. And again, yeah. if you look at gentrification in general, but even specifically in terms of Brooklyn, you know, it, it, it doesn't fit the facts. But it, but it's a rhetoric that certainly liberals accept unquestionably that gentrification is bad for poorer people. Uh, yeah. You know, there was in in Manhattan the. Public housing had excess land in Chelsea, which is a uh, a real expensive, increasingly expensive neighborhood. So yeah. they have three housing projects there who all need repair. So what they decided four years ago is that there was excess land on the Fulton houses where they could build two high-rise uh Apartments that would be mostly market rent, but would have some. Yeah. It would in no way negatively impact on the residents the, of the housing project. But it would give money that was going to be dedicated to repairing the housing in these three housing projects. And the locals killed it? Well, they've been trying to kill it for four years. And I think it was finally passed a few weeks ago, approved. But, you know, here was a win-win. I mean, it was like yeah. this idea of how gentrification is evil is just uh, impenetrable in many ways. It's worth uh, the extended discussion on its own account.
1: I yes. I have been struck by the extent to which there's this visceral... Distaste or really disgust at the idea of neighborhoods changing and and becoming quote unquote better and it's a complex phenomenon. I'm not going to say that I fully understand it, but I can see if you have that and you have also ethnic uh, uh, communal differences and such, you could you could end up with a really serious a really serious problem. No, but no, you know, it's
0: it's complicated.
1: You're saying that you think some uh, Jews were concerned about maintaining American support political support for Israel and concerned about the attacks from the left on the state of Israel, the legitimacy of the of the Zionist project. Uh, in the interest of maintaining what they think is support from blacks, I don't want to understand this,
0: they are looking the other way or kind well, of... The Black, the Black Caucus has been generally very, very supportive of Israel. Okay. Elijah Cummings. Was uh, supported by the black community in his suburban section of his district for that, uh, you know. So it look it's been longstanding broadly.
1: The, the, the black uh, evangelical Christians, and there are quite a few of them, I don't uh, doubt, are
0: also strongly supportive of this. Yes, I would say Pence is probably a very strong supporter.
1: In the He's Pence, not black, but but yeah, yes. But there are a lot of black evangelicals. That's my
0: point. Yes, yes, yes. So you want to move, talk a little bit about Sanders? No, I I just wanted to
1: finish the point. So you're saying there is some dug in strong support amongst black for Israel, but it seems like you or at least some fear that it's not uh, guaranteed and that if, uh, for example, outspoken Jewish advocates were to start calling attention to racial Characteristics of uh, anti-Semitic attacks that they would uh, that they would lose some some of that support.
0: I think so. I mean, it look it makes sense if if you start in a contentious way creating, and it's contentious. Look, we've had a I wouldn't say we've had a contentious discussion here, but it certainly is pointed out that the idea that anti-Semitism is at the root of these attacks is contentious. That there are other things. And so if leaders of the Jewish community I, I just want to be clear. I just want to be careful before we go
1: there. That's all. Yeah. I'm not I'm not arguing with you about it. No, no, I just want to I, be
0: careful. I, I, I'm just saying that for many people who are concerned in good ways, they're not convinced that Black anti-Semitism is the appropriate handle to use to understand what's been going on in New York City. Okay. So if if that isn't even clear, then if Jewish leaders try to convince the black leaders, yes, it is anti-Semitism. You know, they're not going to be uh, yeah very sympathetic. You know, this was true in the early 1990s when black leaders felt that the Jewish leadership would always call them to publicly condemn the anti-Semitism of, uh, you know, Farrakhan or others then. Uh, And can I add something, Bob? This
1: is on my own account, and it doesn't have to do with the incidents of violence, but it does have to do with how. Black intellectuals might be thinking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I've been noticing for a very long time, ever since back in the 80s, and you, were, you mentioned Farrakhan, and I can remember when Jesse Jackson was running for president, there was some controversy because he had gone over to the Middle East and he had embraced Yasser Arafat and all that. And I've been thinking for the longest time, I mean, I'm in the academy, you and I are in the academy, we know the sociologists, the philosophers, the ethnic studies people, the political theorists, that... There's something very compelling about the Palestinian narrative to this is a kind of intersectional intersectionality point to the the sensibility of a woke. I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean, you know, of a critically thinking, you know, uh, freedom fighting, intellectual African-American, because they're going to see those people as non-whites. They're going to see them as non-whites and they're going to see them as. Colonial subjects at some level. Exactly. exactly. By Western hegemonic power and money, which happens to be Jewish. And you don't have to go all the way to protocols of the elders of Zion to see why that might be an appealing uh, kind of uh, natural juxtaposition for people. Uh, I, I fully uh, agree with you. So my, my point is, why not address that directly? You know, why why would the Jewish leadership address that directly?
0: Well, they do address that, but it's it's very complicated. So, for example, I've probably written a dozen or more articles in the last 2 or 3 years about the the Arab population within Israel. Uh, you know, the million and a half Arabs. Yeah. It is incredible how improved their situation is. Yeah. So, for example, at Technion University, which is the MIT of Israel, yeah, twenty-two percent of the students and twenty-two percent of the graduates are Arab. Now, it's in it's in Haifa.
1: Is it is Technion? Well, it's,
0: yes, yeah.
1: So that's a more heavily Arab part of the country, then. But be, I'm
0: just uh, saying this is. But the okay, I,
1: I take the point. That's not insignificant. That's a very significant. You know,
0: thing. you know, what's the percentage of blacks at MIT? Uh, well, it's not 20. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So it's more like, so. Five, it is remarkable. Like so, <laughs> you know, and if we look at what's gone in government employment, it's, it's the share has doubled in the last decade.
1: I see the MIT blacks might be more, I think it's the Caltech black share that's down to five the MIT might be
0: up around 10. Right. You know. no, no. So, but what I'm saying is, that you can go through a number of indices of the situation of the Arab population of Israel. Okay. It's not that they're getting menial jobs. They're getting high tech jobs. They're getting jobs in, uh, school, Jewish school systems.
1: Okay. Now I've got to, I've got to say here, Bob. Okay. They're doing better. Israel is a relatively prosperous country and it's a very technologically uh, adept uh uh you know culturally and so forth and on, so the Israeli Arabs are doing well probably better than any Arab population in the region. on the other hand, there is the occupation we we don 't want to forget that
0: no, no no, I understand, but what i 'm saying is that is that if you look within Israel proper, it is incredible, and it's very little how how well. Arabs have improved under this Netanyahu government. I wrote an article once that Netanyahu is very much like Nixon. If you look at Nixon and his his electoral and political rhetoric, I mean he was right uh, the the Southern strategy, yeah, racism. But if you look at his policies, they weren't you know they weren't super duper yeah yeah pretty progressive his policies yeah. on race, and that's what's going on in Israel that when elections come around, Netanyahu is a racist to the nth degree in demonizing the his Arab citizens. But when you look at what goes on in the government and in there's more aggressive affirmative action in Israel than almost anywhere else. So it's a, it's a very complicated situation. Now, if you get to the occupation, one of the things about the occupation is that if you look at refugee camps, there are half a million Palestinians in Syria. There are open air prisons. The UN says they are the worst camps anywhere. And why are they in those camps? Is because as long as they have refugee status, even though 90% of them are born in Syria, they do not have Syrian citizenship. They can't get jobs, a whole range of jobs in Syria. So this concern for. I'm sorry, two wrongs don't make it right, Bob. I know, but what I'm saying is what is going on is there's very little of an appreciation of how the refugees, whether it's in Gaza, the West Bank, or in – I'm sorry, it's not – it was in Lebanon, not Syria. In Lebanon, these refugees – Okay, that's a big difference, but I got it. Yeah. It's very much like, I would say, in uh, the United States, there's a super – Concern about police violence towards blacks, but the 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 overall violence to blacks in America is done by other blacks. You know the the mur- yeah,
1: man. I know that, but you know no. So what out.
0: I'm saying is, watch out. what are you saying exactly? What I'm saying exactly is Israel is certainly more than heavy-handed with its treatment of the West Bank. There's about, every year, there's about 30 to 40 Palestinians in the West Bank that are killed by U.S. troops. Now, some of them have weapons or whatever, but, you know, there's a brutalization at checkpoints and so on, just as there are police problems in this country. One shouldn't. I got to stop you, Bob,
1: because our time is limited. And I got okay. it. And it. But I can't just let this go. You know, I mean, uh, 1947, 1948, okay, people were dispossessed and people were, uh, were driven out. They also chose to leave out of fear for their safety. They were not allowed to come back. That's just a historical fact. It's not the only population dispossession that has occurred in the history of mankind. At exactly the same time, the Hindu and the uh, Muslims were you know, uh, sorting themselves out in Karachi and in, uh, and in uh, 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 you know, uh, Delhi and whatnot. And people move around. War creates these things, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is the, the, the Jewish homeland rests on the dispossession of those people. Uh, You can't make that go away by comparing the condition of people in uh, refugee camps in Ramallah to the position of people in refugee camps in Beirut. Uh, That's just the historical fact. uh, That's the root of the moral condemnation of the Zionist enterprise in the minds of the progressive left, that the, the nation rests on the dispossession of those people, on behalf of an ethnic project that they feel is inconsistent with the human rights and the universality of them, even your uh, even your Israeli Arabs who are richer than the uh, Arabs who are living in uh, uh, Cairo or uh, Damascus, uh, or Paris. are not are not fully equal, <laughs> equal citizens. Not in the way that we would recognize here in the United States. They don't have the equal protection of the laws because they're not
0: Jewish. I would, I think you're right that the the dispossession of the half a million to seven hundred thousand Arabs, some left on their own, some you know, I mean but the fact is they couldn't come back. That's That's it. Key point is that they couldn't come back is certainly nothing to defend. But the question then becomes what what do you do about the current situation. Okay. And what I'm saying is that this, that the demonizing of Israel is not simply about that dispossession to begin with, but it also suggests, and there is certainly evidence that it's ongoing, that there's the brutalization in the West bank. There is the, uh, Unequal treatment within Israel, so I I push back against the contemporary assessments, but there's no question that that this possession sixty years ago is uh, is a stain on Israel. And, but it's not, I'm not sure what we're escaping so you. Let's transition to the other subject
1: we were going to talk about, which was the campaign, because every one of the Democratic candidates, I saw this debate last night uh, that took place in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, every one of them uh, that I can recall who spoke directly to the question of uh, the uh, um, Israel Palestinian conflict said that the two states' solution was the way to go, that the way to go was the creation of a national entity in which the Palestinians, who are descended from those who were dispossessed and forced out and left, could have a a state of their own. Now, I was in Israel uh, on a junket back in the spring. It wasn't paid for by your community council, but it was probably the same foundation that funds your community council funded my junket. (laughs) And I went around and I was spent time in Ramallah and I spent time in Tel Aviv in Jerusalem and in Gush Etzion, uh, you know, one of the settlements, man. I mean, it was a very interesting and eye-opening experience. And the one thing that seemed very clear to me, and I'm not an expert, is there ain't going to be no two-state solution. That I, I don't know how you feel about that, and I really am.
0: Well, I... But, but I don't see it happening, man. Well, look, It's not going to happen as long as Hamas is in leadership in Gaza. I mean, they are against it. Okay, I I stand by my point. It doesn't matter. No, no, but what?
1: (laughs) Because I saw the PLO leadership and they're all 80 years old, uh, Bob.
0: No, no, I, but what I, you see, what the critics of Israel say is that it's the settlements that are standing in the way of a settlement of a two-state solution. That's what they say. I don't know what that has to do with Hamas. Hamas ain't going away. Yeah, and and frankly, Gush Etzion ain't going away either. Have you been there?
1: I mean, it's unbelievable. It's a city built into the side of a hill. You can look down at it, and you can see the Arab territories right across the uh, canyon there. It's not going anywhere either. I mean— No, no, I
0: understand. I understand. Common
1: sense. Okay, those people are not going anywhere. I
0: I don't—I don't—I don't have any answer. To it but I, all I'm I just said is settlements is not the problem. I think the problem is right of return because you know you now have five million people who are the displaced population, yeah. 95% of them have never lived in Israel, yeah. And but they've been told they're sitting in whether it's these refugee camps in Lebanon or in Gaza, they've been told we're going to get you back to Israel, right? They're not sitting there for a financial settlement, right? I mean, part of the uh, U.S. peace plan was to give a whole chunk of money to the Lebanese Palestinians for economic development, education, and so on. You know, they're not their leaders won't, won't settle for money. And, you know, so I, I think there's a lot going on besides the settlements. And, but if you ask me if we're talking 15 years from now, I hope we do. Uh, me too. Is going to be any difference? Is it still going to be, essentially the same situation. I think it will be the same situation. The only thing that will change it is the Europeans. If the Europeans, just as with Iran, if the Europeans would start taking a different position, then I think you would start to get some compromising by the Palestinian side. What I
1: heard from the young Palestinians, I mean under 40, intellectuals that I spoke with was, we'll hold out for the one-state solution. We're here, we're queer, get used to it, basically is what they're saying. We ain't going nowhere. And you can either occupy us apartheid style before the world or absorb us and it's going to be one person, one vote before too long. Well, it's
0: good that that's what the intellectual, the left intellectual young people are thinking? I, I get this. I read this magazine, 972, which is their voice in Israel. Go okay. 972 mag. Uh, OK, I'll look up. I'll look at it. And but they don't count in, in many ways. They're not the people who want jobs. I mean, if you talk to just regular families in the West Bank, they want to they want a job in Israel. They want, you know, that's what they want. So I think that it's – if the Europeans, for example, if if they would get rid of this permanent status of refugees, move away from it, if they would move away from funding of these textbooks in West Bank, I think then – whether it's a boss or whosoever the West Bank leadership is going to have to start making some compromises, and uh, that's my only hope. But I don't see the West. I don't see the Europeans moving. They have a Muslim and, and, population and anti-Semitism
1: about. is going to be the culprit there, I suppose.
0: Well, they have large enough Muslim
1: populations. Oh, I see. Also, domestic political pressure.
0: Yeah, that's that was true in England. Uh, yeah. Or Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, OK, so- let's
1: talk about the other thing, Bob, because I can't believe it. And the, you know what I can't believe? You're going to think it's because I It's I can't believe a Jew is about to be nominated the uh, standard bearer for a major political party for the presidency. I can believe that. What I can't believe is that a democratic socialist is about to be nominated the standard bearer for a major party. And I ask this of you, how you react to that, because you... I don't know if you ever were a democratic socialist, but I know you used to be a man of the left. You're rather Jewish and you're not that far in age difference. I was the guy a Leninist.
0: A... <laughs> I went beyond democratic socialism. I was a Leninist. Uh, Damn. I, I so, th- so what do you make of what's going on, man? Well, I think that the problem is the moderate lane is split. And, you know, because if you would add up the votes of Buttigieg, of Klobuchar, of Biden, just those three, and and, and we'll see, well, Steyer, and we'll see what happens with uh, Bloomberg. If you add them up, they are the majority. And none of them want, none of them want uh, Bernie Sanders. So... You know, Elizabeth Warren is a little different, but you add up those others. But what happens is they have to get 15 percent. So if in this South Carolina primary, you know, you know, a couple of them get 13 or 11. Then Sanders get that's what happened. That's what happened in Nevada. He only had on the first ballot 33 percent but he got like 70% of the delegates. Okay, because there's a threshold so,
1: before you can get any
0: delegates. So, and I, my anticipation is he will go to the convention with between 35 and 40% of the delegates. He's going to be the nominee there. Well, if it's closer to 35%, it's going to be tricky because if you then add up what what the... The moderate lane has. If you add them up, they will be more. And when you get the superdelegates on the second ballot, now this might be a convention like 1968, if that happened. That's, you know, that's the problem that Sanders is going to say, it doesn't matter that I'm only a plurality. I have the most, and and his people will say that. And it may very well be that the superdelegates say, you know, we have to we have to go with him. Well, I say that's what they're going to say. I mean, you you saw what happened
1: with Obama and Hillary Clinton as we came to the 2008 convention. The, the very idea that superdelegates might do anything other than give the nomination to Obama was taken as an absolute statement of racism and i expect it won't be racism but it'll be some kind of ideological racism that uh quote unquote that uh, people will point to if uh, sanders is not given the knot when he goes in in first place
0: well but if the delegates absent the superdelegates if if the regular delegates on the second ballot if a majority of them go for a candidate other than sanders it gets a little tricky for this rhetoric if it's so, you know, if it's the super delegates that put him over the top, you're right. But as I said, if he's only getting about thirty five percent of the delegates, and you then add up the Buttigieg and the yeah. and the others, and they're fifty percent.
1: Well, we've we've heard this before in twenty sixteen on the other side of the aisle, right? Yeah, the That's problem exactly there what was, people were saying about Trump. Exactly.
0: No, no, but the pro- the difference there was that the Republicans had winner take all primaries, so even though he got twenty five to thirty percent, he got one hundred percent of the delegates. Okay, so so he know, was
1: in a stronger position than uh, Sanders. Uh, right. Is, I mean, if, if
0: they're winner take all, there's no question. If they will winner take all, Sanders is going to be the winner in the majority of the states because twenty five to thirty percent will win. So,
1: anyway. So, but now, as a former Leninist, gosh, I didn't know that about you. That's pretty. Uh, that's that's pretty strong stuff. What do you make of Sanders? Are you excited?
0: This is your time has come. Right? <laughs> well, look, I, I. What I liked about Sanders for a long time is that he had class politics, but that's sort of old school now. Class politics. And he's really moved on. You know, he'll talk about unions and so on, but he's much more closely identified now with identity politics more than he ever had been. The second thing about him is I really fear his Middle East policy. I, not simply because- Which of, is
1: not identity politics. I just want the audience to know that you're no, not- No,
0: I know. That's separate. <laughs> but, and it's not be, it's not simply because of Israel. But okay. it's Iran. You know Iran. <laughs> you can see he comes back and Ben Rhodes and the old Obama people are gonna come in and they basically said to Iran, you have the Middle East. They 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 moved out of Syria, they gave you know and I think that for broadly people in the Middle East, Lebanon, Iraq in particular. That handing over to Iran uh, carte blanche in the Middle East is is a real horror, and so that's what I'm.
1: What, what is Sanders? What is Sanders' position on Iran that causes you such concern? I, because, I really want to know.
0: Because he's not anti-Iranian. He's more anti-Israel. He's against the Saudis. He has the Obama position. I mean, that was essentially Obama's position that we're going to reposition the U.S., we're going to move away from the Saudis, we're going to move away not in, from Israel, and we're going to ally ourselves with Iran. That was their position, to a large extent. And,
1: ally ourselves with? I mean, it, that sounds like a stretch, doesn't it? Ally ourselves with Iran, ally ourselves with the people who are funding Hezbollah, uh, ally ourselves with the people who are arming uh, Hamas. Uh, That that never bothered
0: bothered the
1: the people who are killing American soldiers in Iraq and have been doing it for over a decade. You really think that Obama's position was to ally himself with the uh, instigator of so much mischief with the Houthis
0: in Yemen and and so on? I think so. I think... It was just, you know, this whole issue of that nuclear deal. To get that nuclear deal, he refu- he, he gave Syria to the Russians and Iranians. I, I can send you some material from the Atlantic Council, this guy, Frederick Huff, who, you know, who wrote about this in 2015, 2016, that the Obama administration refused to stand up at all because they wanted the nuclear deal. And and part of it was that they put no pressure on Iran to stop arming Hezbollah. Uh, that wasn't part of their deal. There was no evidence that they, you know, when they gave this two billion dollars in cash in the plane, yeah, they yeah. Didn't anything about who you can give that money to. Okay, I don't want to quibble about words. Maybe a lie
1: uh, yourself is not the right way of putting it, but you're saying they cut corners and made compromises that you don't think were in the interest of the U.S. or, for that matter, of Israel or the Saudis on behalf of the objective of Or the Lebanese
0: or the Iraqis.
1: On behalf of the objective of trying to contain Iran's nuclear ambition. Uh, and obviously there's a strong case on the other side. I'm not competent really to, to try to present it, saying that that was the best... We could do, and that at least it put Iran in a box, at least it created parameters uh, that uh, now, since that deal has been thrown over, uh, no longer exist, and Iran is going to do whatever it's going to do, and we don't have any influence over it, except these sanctions, which, have, which are biting as much as they're going to bite. So,
0: No, no, anyway, so that's yeah. why... Yes Okay man. so you're concerned about I'm concerned his foreign about policy, saying this
1: policy, but you're not concerned about uh forcing corporations to put uh, uh laborers on their board of uh of uh, uh you know uh, on their board of directors, uh, board of directors thank you. You are not concerned about a minimum wage of God only knows how much 25 dollars an hour what is he talking about? <laughs> uh, you're not concerned about uh all this rhetoric about greedy corporations that he's going to uh uh, rein in with one or another uh, regulatory intervention. But not it's just talk. You're not concerned about if, shutting down the production of energy, which has had a transformative effect on the American employment and uh, uh, economic uh,
0: security. I mean, I, there's I, a lot I, wrong with Bernie Sanders, man. No, Seems I understand. But you see, my my view is he might squeak a victory in because Trump is so disgusting in a range of ways. He, okay. might, he might squeak in but he's not going to have coattails. Probably the opposite. Yeah. Probably the opposite. So Sanders can get in, but he will have to rely on executive executive actions to do anything. And much of what he wants, he can't do through executive actions. So I don't know what he's going to do except rant. And I, you know, so I'm not particularly... Worried about, you know, he's going to stop fracking, for example, which is bizarre. But, you know, maybe he'll do that through an executive action. I don't know. But I, I am hoping he doesn't get to be the nominee. I can tell you
1: this. I've watched the last two Democratic debates. And for my money, he was the only person on the stage who knew what he wanted to do. That's right. He knows why he wants to be president, and he knows what he wants to do. The rest of them are fumbling around in a fog, as far as I could tell.
0: No, no, no. I agree with you, and you know the fact is that he—he's the nominee. You know, there's a real likelihood Trump will win, but, and it's going to hinge on the Jewish vote in Florida. Say, so I want to come back circle to the Jew. You know. No. Well. Uh, No, Florida is a tricky... I I think if Sanders could win Florida, he's definitely going to get elected. But between his Cuban romanticism... Yeah, man. And his
1: anti-Israel
0: policies... I want to just, because we need to conclude, that we have two parts
1: of the conversation. One was about anti-Semitism in New York, and the other is about the Democratic uh, presidential contest. Uh, Michael Bloomberg up there on the stage worth 50 or $60 billion. He's very Jewish, man. His name is Bloomberg. He's a Jew. He's a rich Jew. Forgive me, but he is, man. That's just a statement (laughs) of fact.
0: A rich
1: rich Jew tries to buy the presidency. This is what the uh, Nation of Islam uh, headline is going to be in their (laughs) Samistat, in their little thing. Rich Jew is supposedly wins. Rich Jew buys the White House. Kind of thing like that. He's not you Do you fear? A revival of some more serious than is already extant, which is already serious enough, anti-Semitism in America uh, should uh, one of these characters, and I mean especially Bloomberg,
0: uh, succeed in getting the nomination. Well, the fact is that I don't think it. I don't think it will because I don't think either one of them is going to govern as a Jew. In any way, and I don't think you know. So we're we're getting pretty far off into speculation here, but I I think that uh, this anti-Semitism is you know after all it's in Europe much more seriously than here. Uh, I think. You know, in the last month, there really haven't been incidents in New York City that have been publicized. That uh, I think anti-Semitism in the United States may go back in the bottle, except if it becomes anti-Israel stuff. You know, if if uh, the Squad, uh, uh, you know, if they raise it, uh, AOC and others. Uh, But I I think that nobody should be concerned in the Jewish community if either Bloomberg or uh, Sanders gets elected, that it will set in motion uh, anti-Semitism to a significant extent.
1: But if Sanders does uh, somehow manage to get to the White House and remains, uh, you know, Embracing his uh, anti-Zionist uh, position, I think that's an accurate description of it. What does that make of Jewish uh, political uh, thought? I mean, huh? what, what do you do? Do you excommunicate him? Uh, <laughs> not you well, personally, don't forget, but is he still a Jew? I mean, what, how he's, does, been how a, does that?
0: he's been a Jew just as much as he's been a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why no, I a compliment it. people. <laughs> I published an article a year ago about his Jewishness, uh, year and a half, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, he's got a very complicated sense of his being Jewish. And it's, I don't think he really has, he certainly doesn't have any ties to any section of the Jewish community other than the extreme left, this Jewish currents, which I actually used to I'm still a lifetime member of, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of, Ben the Ark, there's a couple of very anti-Zionist Jewish instruments that he's come to have some ties. He didn't have three years ago. He had no ties even with them. JVP? He's found it, he's found it useful in the last six months or a year to – associate himself with his Jewishness. When he ran in 2016, he was asked about it and he refused to talk about it. I remember seeing that debate and it was like amazing how he just wouldn't talk about it. He's decided that, again, because I think a little bit of identity politics, that he can can talk about it and it be consistent with who he is. Uh, Now, how he talks about it you know, it was one thing, but, you know, 2016, he was not even willing to. He would say he, he, he comes from a Jewish background, yeah. but he wouldn't say he was Jewish. Now, do you think he can get the, I don't know, three
1: quarters of the Jewish vote in Florida if he were to be the nominee?
0: Well, that's going to be interesting. I'm just saying that's going to be interesting because that's by and large. It's a very liberal Jewish community, yeah. but it's a Jewish community. That has strong ties to Israel. Yeah. So it, you know, we'll see. But if, if he doesn't carry Florida, then there's somewhat more likelihood Trump can eke it out. Um, so.
1: All right. That, that's assuming that Trump doesn't end up running the table. Uh, because America's not ready for a democratic socialist, uh, which is actually my prognostication. I don't see the country. Oh, you think it'll be
0: another McGovern, huh? Yeah,
1: I do, actually. I'd just happily be wrong about that, but that's what I think. I'm no expert, so don't bet your money on that. (laughs) Bob, Bob Cherry, Robert Cherry, Professor Emeritus Economics Brooklyn
0: College, my friend. Thanks for coming on The Glenn Show, Bob. Well, thanks for having me and you have a good editing job to do here. Uh, <laughs> no, we just we, we just put
1: it up the way it is, man. We let <laughs> If there's okay. something if there's something that you would prefer to not be seen saying, you should tell me and we'll have the editors no, it. I,
0: what I say is what I say. Here we are. Okay. Uh, thanks again, Bob. Take care.